Our first reading this morning is taken from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, and you'll find Jonah 3 on page 852 of your church Bibles. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. And the second reading is from Matthew chapter 12, commencing at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, two things before I begin. I realised I forgot to mention, uh, if you would love to pray for more college, and uh, we would really love your prayers, uh, Ed has a bunch of magazines uh, about the college, and you can grab one of them and, and pray for us. Uh, the second thing is, um, I'm aware that, uh, as we read that Jonah passage, uh, that you may not have gotten past verse 4. The idea of a God uh, being a God of anger and demolishing uh, people is too confronting and you may have written it off. Uh, know that I hear that objection, and I'm going to uh, unpack that a bit. Uh, so I'm not going to put that to one side. Uh, before we do, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that it would change us ultimately for your glory, Lord, and for our joy. Amen. Uh, tomorrow is Monday. Not that you needed reminding of that, but let's say you went into work, and the boss called you in his office, sat you down and said, you know, you're doing a good job. You know, your work is, is good. So we're going to send you to our new branch overseas and uh, you will go. 
And uh, we're sending you to Korea, North Korea. You're probably thinking, well, is this some sort of joke? You know, and you realize it's not. And you're probably wondering, will I be coming back ever? Jonah is sent to Nineveh, and it is equally as shocking. And we're going to look at five shocking moments in chapter 3. Five shocking moments. And as we look at each one, they're actually going to become more and more unexpected. The first shocking moment is where Jonah is sent. Two chapters later, a near-death experience, a whale, and a whole lot of water, Jonah arrives at Nineveh. Have a look, at me. look with me in verse 3 of chapter 3. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. Nineveh was the capital of the superpower at the time. Think Tokyo, think London. And uh, it, it says there it was a three-day walk, which is basically code for it's, it's a, one big beast of a city. It housed around 120,000 people. We know, even from non-biblical sources, a lot about Nineveh. Uh, we know that Tiglath-Pileser III uh, founded the city in uh, 730 BC. Later then, Sennacherib, which is a great name for your next child, Sennacherib uh, then established it as the capital of Assyria. Even archaeologists have found a walled city that runs for about 12 k's. So both in the Bible and outside the Bible, this is quite an impressive city. But the focus here is not so much on the city, but the people. And if you've ever studied uh, ancient history, you might know that the Assyrians had a reputation. Some have said that they're probably the most warlike people who've ever existed. They delighted in cruelty and pain and, and, and violence. Uh, Sources tell us that they enjoyed such things, almost like a hobby, like stabbing and beheading and impaling people on poles, chopping off hands and feet and, tongue, feet and tongues, plucking out eyes. These things they enjoyed. If you've, uh, so much so that even kings bragged about this. If you've been to the British Museum, and uh, every second person I meet at this church is from England somehow, so I presume a lot of you have, in the British Museum, they have a lot of Assyrian relics and, and artwork. This is one of them on the screen. It's, uh, in the in museum, it's depicting the Assyrians skinning people alive. Now, the fact that you'd have this in stone on the wall of the palace tells you a bit about this people. We'll take it down. Uh, <laughs> this is where Jonah is sent. It's like if you were sent to North Korea or worse, into the ISIS or Taliban stronghold. How would you feel? What would you say? Have a look in verse 4, what Jonah does. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Uh, friends, I don't think there has been in the history of sermons a more short, sharp, to-the-point kind of sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. There are no jokes. There are no light-hearted stories. To quote Black Eyed Peas, where is the love? Like, it's, it's, it's blunt, right? And to be honest, it's probably a summary of what he says, but the message is clear. That God is going to punish you. That you cannot get away with what you are doing anymore. And friends, I'm aware that some of you are probably thinking, well, that's, that's pretty barbaric of God, you know, pretty, pretty petty. You know, the fact that God would, would threaten to wipe out a people. I mean, how is it that a God would use the threat of violence to destroy a violent people? 
Isn't there another way? You know, how could, how could I possibly believe in a God like this, you might be thinking? You know, a God that uh, dishes out judgment and divine vengeance. A response to this is by a guy called Miroslav Volf, and uh, he is a Croatian talking about his experience in the Balkan War. Have a listen to what he says. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What he's saying there is a secular Westerner believes that if I, thinks if I believe in a God who judges, who, who shows divine vengeance, then that will make me violent. But what Wolf is saying here is if you've actually been through the things he describes, if you've been through those, those atrocities, then you have to pick up the sword yourself and get them back. You have to take matters into your own hands unless you have a greater reason that someone will make everything right. That you don't take justice into your own hands because you know that God will take justice into his hands. Friends, another way of putting this is if there is no one at the bench in the courtroom, if there is no ultimate judge, then why is it that what you do matters, good or bad? Because here Jonah is preaching a message, blunt, yes, but God sent. And what he is saying is that there is someone at the bench. There is someone who has made a verdict that what you do actually matters. What Jonah is, is saying to the Ninevites shows that Friends, everything that we do in our life has meaning. Every choice that you make has a purpose. Every decision has relevance. And you might be thinking, yeah, but I don't need God for that. Friends, if there's no judge, if there's no one for you to give an account of your life, then who cares what you do, particularly if you get away with it? But I presume most of us live as if our decisions have meaning, if our choices we make have purpose and relevance. We live as if there's a God, but we do not recognize him. And here Jonah is declaring to the Ninevites, what you do actually matters because there is an ultimate judge for you to give an account to. The second shocking moment in chapter 3 is how the Ninevites respond. How do they respond to the message, in 40 days you will be demolished? I mean, you think about it, right? This is the superpower of the time. And here's one man with no army coming in saying, you're going to be demolished. And, and he's a Jew, no less, right? Israel was a very insignificant country. It's like New Caledonia with their coconuts and semi-French accents. Not very intimidating, right? Think that. You know, Jonah's coming in. I half expect these students to say, oh, that's cute, get the knife. You know, it's amazing Jonah is not in the British Museum somewhere. But have a look how they respond. Verse uh, 5, I think it is. Verse 5. The men of Nineveh believed in God. 
the men of Nineveh believed in God. There are different ways to respond when you've found out you're guilty, exposed for what you've done. I think there's three main ways. The first is to deny. Uh, I was a uh, high school teacher in Blacktown, and you'd see this all the time. Uh, I, you know, you'd be on playground duty and turn a corner, there'd be some kids smoking. They'd be like, uh, I didn't do this. I didn't know this was wrong, sir. You know, and then, well, you're racist. You can't get me in trouble. You know, just deny, 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 deny. The second a common response is to compare, to compare yourself to others. You sort of admit a bit of fault, but well, at least I'm not like that. You see this in politics all the time, right? You know, a politician's been exposed and say, yes, well, look how bad, how bad labor are. They're more inconsistent than I. I mean, even apparently in, in prisons, this happens. A friend of mine is a prison guard at Silverwater, and he was telling me that uh, rapists will shave their head to visually show, well, at least I'm not like a pedophile. And I said to him, I said, but, but they're racist. He says, yes, but they think, well, at least I'm not like that person. I'm better than them. Friends, from politics to prisons, we all have people in our lives who we have theirs, well, at least I'm not like them. The third response is probably the most rarest of all. It's to admit fault and accept responsibility. To say, yes, I did that and I'm sorry. The Ninevites could have chosen the first two, but they accept what they have done. They realize the significance of They accept responsibility and they repent. Have a look in verse 5 what they do. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. A fast is where you eat and drink nothing. And sackcloth is probably the itchiest clothing ever. And and they wore it as a, a symbol of desperation. And notice it was all of them, right? They're not pointing fingers. Well, you skinned more people than I. You should really repent. You know, they all accepted responsibility for what they had done. And even the government admits fault, which is probably a miracle unto itself. Have a look. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. The king of Nineveh exchanged his Versace suit for sackcloth. He'd stepped down from his royal throne into the dust. He got rid of his all-you-can-eat buffet for a fast. And all of them, all of them turned from their evil ways. Friends, imagine that. 120,000 people repenting towards God. I mean, how many of you have been to ANZ Stadium? How many of you have been there? Okay, quite, quite a few. That holds about 83,000 people, right? When it's full. Imagine 120,000 people repenting towards God. What that would have been like. But friends, the most amazing thing in the book of Jonah is not a whale, is not a storm, is not even 120,000 people repenting. The third shocking moment in this chapter is found in verse 10. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. How does God respond to a wicked people? How does he treat them after they've repented? Does he say, oh, well, too late? He shows mercy. He shows mercy. And friends, some of you may be thinking, well, what is God doing here? I mean, did he just 
put the sin to one side? Did he ignore it? Was it some sort of test? You know, what about all the, the wrong things they have done? It's like if you uh, were, say for example, after church you went home and you found out you'd been robbed. And uh, the, uh, what the thief had done, he had, had stolen thousands of dollars. He had written profanities and racist things all over the walls. He had destroyed some of your precious memories and mutilated your pets. And that person was caught and stood before a judge. And that judge gave a very appropriate sentence for what he'd done. But then the judge says, mm, you know what? Maybe we'll just ignore it this time. You can go. You would cry out for injustice, right? You would cry out wanting justice. Is that what is happening here? Did God simply just say, oh, well, we'll ignore it this time? Friends, God in showing mercy does not ignore judgment but delays it. God sent Noah to preach a message that they would repent. But there is a judgment coming. Because God cannot ignore, put to the side, put under the rug, sin. He is a God of justice. And this speaks of a future judgment to come. I'll show you what I mean. Turn to uh, Matthew 12, page 897, I believe, in your black Bibles. Matthew 12. We looked at this last week, but I want to show you one more thing in verse 41 of chapter 12. says this, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation and took something great. Uh, uh, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus is saying there, friends, is there is a judgment to come that the Ninevites will stand before God, that God does not ignore sin. He shows mercy, yes, but judgment as well. He's saying here as the future judge that every single person, every generation will give an account for what they've done. That shows that what you do has meaning. Every decision, every thought you had will be brought before God. Where things you thought you got away with, you found out you did not. The things that have been done to you where no justice was actually had will be made right. Things that were in the darkness, done in secret, will be brought to the light. Justice will be had. And you will stand before God and give an account. And you cannot compare because it's just you. And you cannot deny because God knows all. God will judge. Justice will be had. The fourth shocking moment in this chapter is found on the lips of the king. Verse 9. It's on the screens in Jonah 3 says this, who knows, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Friends, the Ninevites hoped, hoped that God would change his mind, hoped for mercy. But they could never in a million years guess where God would turn his anger towards. That the judge would take on the judgment himself. That when God turned his burning anger from the Ninevites, that he actually turned it to his son on a cross outside Jerusalem. And Jesus willingly had God's anger placed on him. 
not for his own rejection, but for the Ninevites, for people like you and me. And it was there on that cross that Jesus was ultimately demolished so that the Ninevites did not have to be. It was there that Jesus perished under the wrath of God so that you could live a life free of fear. And I know some of you want to say we should focus on the fact that God is loving and accepts all. But where is true justice? And I know others of you might say we should focus on the fact that God is full of wrath and anger. But what was he doing on that cross? Both extremes are inadequate, friends. But the tension here is how can God be merciful and just? How can he be a God of wrath and a God of love? Look to the cross. Look where Jesus hung. Because it was there Jesus took the sin and wickedness onto himself and paid the punishment. That no sin goes unpunished. So that he could offer mercy. It was there that he took the wrath of God onto himself so that he could love you and embrace you. Someone must pay the punishment for what has been done. And the good news, friends, is that Jesus took it on himself. The fifth and final shocking moment in this chapter, and this probably is I find the most surprising of all. Why is this written? Why has chapter 3 been recorded, and why is it in the Bible? Jesus gives us a, a clue to that in, in Matthew 12, which we just read. And the answer is found in, who is he speaking to? Who is he talking to? He's talking to religious leaders, to Pharisees, to people who thought they were good enough for God. And he mentions the men of Nineveh as an example, more so like a warning. A warning to show that these people, though they had done terrible things, they repented. And God ultimately forgave them in Jesus. And you know what? They're in. But it is people who are religious, people who think they're good enough for God, people who don't repent, they're out. Friends, the shocking news, the the shocking reality of, of Christianity is that it's people who admit that they're bad are in and people who think they're good enough are out. Because at the end of the day, friends, repentance is admitting fault. It is admitting you've done something wrong. Admitting that you don't want justice in the end. You want mercy. And knowing that God forgives you. God took, takes the punishment that you deserve unto himself. But if you do not repent, what you are saying is there is nothing wrong. You do not hope for mercy because you do not think God needs to be mercy. You do not repent because you do not think there's anything to repent of. And this stands, friends, as a warning that you need to repent. Let me end by uh, just sharing you my story about how I became a Christian, how I, uh, that moment when I first repented. My story is not like a Ninevite story. Not like a blatant rejection. I was more like a Pharisee, more like a, a person who thought I was good enough for God. And I could rattle off my resume of all the good things I'd done. And it was one time uh, when uh, a youth group leader mentioned to me, just in passing, you know, James, he said, there are no good people in heaven, just forgiven people. And that really shook me up. It was like a rock in my shoe that I couldn't ignore. And after a while, it dawned on me. I needed to repent. And it's like I'd been thrown off a cliff and I'd grabbed onto a a root of a tree. And that root was all the good things I'd done. 
that I thought would save me from the judgment to come. But then there was a rope offered. All the things that Jesus had done. And I had to, as it were, grab onto that rope but let go of that root. Let go of all the good things I'd done. And that was a risk. That wasn't easy. But I had to let go. But I knew what I was grabbing onto. The fact that Jesus died. And when I saw him on that cross, I realized my sin is more serious than I thought. That God is truly just and loves me more than I realize. But I needed to repent. Friends, that's my story. I wonder what your story is. Friends, if you have not repented, let this morning, let this moment be that time when you do. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now as sinners, not deserving your love. We are sorry for our own rejection of you. We are sorry particularly for those of us who are religious, who are moral, who think we're good enough for you. May you show us this very day how much we actually need you. We thank you, Jesus, that you took the full force of God's anger, God's righteous and right-controlled anger onto yourself so that we can stand free and declare there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Amen.